It's okay. <clears throat> I'm grateful for the chance to gather together with brothers and sisters with whom I feel such a kinship. Uh, I wonder, and I suspect you have, how people who don't have what we have together today, how they do life. How do you do life when, you, when you're not able to be connected with brothers and sisters, some of whom you've never met before, can walk into a room like this and instantly feel at home uh, among friends, among those who, with whom you share preeminent values. I appreciate that. I appreciate the opportunity to speak to you today, just to give you a little bit of my perspectives and talk a little bit about what God is doing in our world, what He wants us to be about as well. The, uh, the question I'd like for us to start off with is a simple one, and it is permissible for you to actually answer out loud if you like. Whose mission is it? It, it, and that might, for some of you are thinking, well, well, that's an obvious question, but I heard at least three different answers. Are we confused? Well, no, I don't think we are. Well, maybe we are. I've been confused much in my life, but I, I think it reflects two or three different perspectives. Now, some of you answered, well, it's everybody's mission. And that's true. By extension, Terry mentioned the fact that the commission was initially made to 11 scared men uh, but that hands down to us, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul tells Timothy, that which you've received from me, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That suggests that this is an ongoing mission that all of us have a place in. So that's a true, that's a true answer. Somebody said, it's mine. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate the personal response to the commission that Jesus has given us, that uh, we have a tendency sometimes perhaps to relegate that to the few, the proud, you know, those who are extraordinary in some way and will go and take the gospel to places where you or I might be uncomfortable. Uh, one little story here, uh, several years ago when we were living in Slovakia, came back for our first furlough. First of all, there's a tendency for people to make heroes out of missionaries. That's not fair. They're not heroes. We're just brothers and sisters. But somebody said one time to Dana, oh, I, could, I appreciate you guys so much for that. I, I could never do that. I just love my family too much. <laughs> Seriously? We don't love our families? Our families, don't, our, we're, our family is just so close. It could not be any closer than Dana's family is. But we, we sometimes want to disclaim responsibility for our role in that area because of, and you can fill in the blank, but this is my mission. It's mine. God has given me something to do. Uh, I think I heard, I don't know if you have a corner of your ear. I know you have a corner of the eye, but I think I heard out of the corner of my ear somebody say, it's God's mission. And that's really what I'd like to focus on today, not because the other two responses are untrue, but because that response could not be more true. It's God's mission. God has something that He wants done. And today I thought I would take a look at three occasions in the Old Testament where God wanted to accomplish His mission and to look at how He did it. Several years ago, long time ago I guess now because my perspective has evolved over time, but a long time ago now, I, uh, I remember thinking, 
Lord, I don't mean to question you or anything, but you know, you, you are om, omnipresent and omnipotent. You can be anywhere. You can do anything. Why not just go to every single person, whisper in that person's ear with that undeniable, overwhelming godness of yours, and then everybody will have heard the gospel. Am I the only one who, have not, who has noticed that that's not what happened? Now, we could spend a long time talking about perhaps reasons for that. Uh, maybe the best response to that is that even Moses was not permitted to have that kind of overwhelming relationship with God. And overwhelming is the key word here. There's a sense in which if God comes and individually confronts me about my sin, it would be impossible for me to not obey. And God wants a voluntary response to the gospel. He wants me to do it not because I'm overwhelmed to the degree that I can't not do it, but He wants me to do it because I've come to understand what it is that He cares about. And for that to mean enough to me that I will do it. So, it's God's mission. And we serve a God who sins. As a matter of fact, every case you say, well, now God did appear to some people, right? And yes, he did. But what did he appear to them for? And the answer, I believe, is he appeared to them so he could send them. You really don't see occasions where God appears to a person so that he can save that person. Now, we have examples of times like in the life of Abraham where God approaches Abram and he says, this is the kind of person that I want you to be. But even that is instrumental, isn't it? Isn't that for the purpose of bringing a people who would then respond to God? So God is a God who sins. And I'll take a look at these three examples today. The first of them is Moses. Exodus chapters 3 and 4. It's a very familiar story to you. The second will come from Isaiah chapter 6. Another very familiar story to you. And the third is the life of Jonah. In Jonah chapters 1, particularly 1 and 4. And I think there is a common thread that we see in these three stories that will help us to understand something about the nature of mission, the nature of God's mission and how he seeks to accomplish it. And it starts in an interesting place because we have a tendency to kind of zoom in on the part of God's mission that we are responsible for accomplishing. And we're going to do that today. And I rather unapologetically will, will voluntarily participate in that process uh, of looking at what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to do it. But we need to zoom out and recognize that mission doesn't begin with a command or a commission. It doesn't begin there. That's the part where it comes to us, but it begins with the very nature of God. It's who God is that really fuels our mission. First thing I want you to know in the three stories that we'll talk about today is that God first demonstrates his holiness and sovereignty. When in Exodus chapter 3, we see Moses, he's out tending sheep for his father-in-law in Midian. And he comes near Mount Horeb. And there he sees this bush that is burning yet not being consumed. That's a phenomenon unparalleled in the world. His life experiences do not ready him for that reality. Causes him to begin to be attentive 
And using that attention, God then calls out to Moses. And he says, take your shoes or your sandals off your feet for the place in which you stand is holy. Holy ground. Then he begins to appeal to Moses to allow himself to become submissive to God's intention for his life. And in those two realities, we see the holiness and sovereignty of God. God is other. He is unlike anyone or anything that has ever existed. Uh, he can create physical realities, which otherwise would be impossible. And he has the right to expect us to behave in ways that are consistent with the overwhelming nature of his identity. God is great. He is good. Do not come near, he tells Moses. You need to be aware that there's a difference between you and me. There's distance. We live in a society which is ever more informal, it seems, where many of the distinctions that we used to observe between various peoples of different statuses, for example, uh, younger people perhaps are less likely to value way, age and wisdom and experience, perhaps. Um, we, our boss dresses like we, like we dress, jeans and a t-shirt frequently. Uh, we, we don't acknowledge that anybody has the right to expect that we would treat them better or different on the basis of their status. We, we tend to devalue those sorts of things in our culture. Now, culture is what it is. And we can decide collectively whether or not we're okay with that trend. But one thing we cannot do is to come to the point where we think God is somehow just like us. And that we can treat Him with that level of familiarity and comfort. Certainly He is our Father. And we have with Him a relationship which is beautiful and loving and compassionate. But He is not me. He's God. And He expects... Not demanding, but expecting that we will recognize that distinction and that our response to him will be in line with that reality. Don't you come over here with your shoes on. I'm different. As a matter of fact, I am so different that even the place where I dwell is transformed by that reality. The ground on which you stand now is holy. I'm the God of your father, of God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Moses recognized what you and I must recognize, and that is the mission of God starts with who he is. Let's move on and talk about Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to do this for each one of the thoughts that we'll share today. Isaiah chapter 6 has become one of my favorites because I think I see there a process that all of us needs to go through as we prepare to be used by God. And it starts, as Isaiah says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And he goes on to describe the accoutrements of that setting with the seraphim that existed there and, and the way that they were standing before God. And note the six wings. Two of them were used for flying. The others were used to prevent God's overwhelming greatness from just slaying them, perhaps. In other words, they, they cover their face, they cover their bodies with these wings to create some distance, perhaps, to acknowledge and recognize that God is different and other. And then we're going to see 
Isaiah react to that the way that Moses reacted to that. Moses covers his face because he can't see God. Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, living amidst a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord, Lord God of hosts, Lord God Almighty. Has anybody else noticed that we haven't gotten to the commission yet? But that something powerful is taking place here. Let's keep going. Now, in order to see these things in Jonah, you have to look around. Jonah's situation is a little bit different. God does not appear to Jonah in the way that he is represented before Moses and Isaiah. But when we see the men, the fishermen on the boat, where Jonah, of course, has been commissioned by God and has fled to Tarshish. And he's on this ship and God sends a storm. People are terrified. And these are people who are not terrified normally of being out on the sea. And uh, they finally isolate what the problem is. Jonah's the problem. Jonah admits that. And he says, you need to throw me overboard. I think that'll fix your problem. I want you to notice their realization. They called out to the Lord, oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. What they're doing is saying, we don't want to have bear the consequences for throwing this guy overboard. We understand that normally that would be wrong. But... Do not lay on us his innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. There is a recognition of the sovereignty of God here. Conversations between Jonah and the men on this boat undoubtedly have been had. And they recognize that God is indeed working his plan. You see, Jonah is not supposed to be on that boat. He's supposed to be on his way to Nineveh. And he has attempted to thwart the sovereign plan of God. And these men on this ship about to throw him overboard says, We recognize, O oh God, that you are sovereign. That the things that are happening now are happening because you are working out your plan. If we begin to think about mission strictly on the basis of what our assignment is, we are doing nothing more than the American Red Cross. There are a lot of people doing a lot of really good things out here in our world. But they are not fueled by and directed by the sovereign power and authority of God. That's why we do what we do. If it is not done for that reason, it is a hollow and empty and ultimately fruitless reality. Let's not forget that. This is his mission, and we should be about it. <clears throat> Notice, second of all, God is, is aware of his objectives, but he is aware of his objectives primarily because he is aware of our needs. When God created man, put him, them, male and female in the garden, um, they were in an ideal relationship with him. They were not what he was, but they were everything that he wanted them to be. He had pronounced them good. The creation as a whole, very good. And he had a relationship where they would be able to share intimately in interaction in an ideal context. But of course, you know the way that story continues. Man and woman were not satisfied 
led to discontent by Satan in the person of the serpent. They presumptuously sought to be more than God had made them. Sin resulted. And from that time on, man has had a significant problem, to say the least. He has a need. He has a problem he can't solve, a need that he cannot meet. And God is aware of man's need. In the three stories that we're going to talk about today, first of all, notice as Moses stands before that burning bush, the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them. Don't miss this. God sees. And he sees in a way that transcends our capacity to see. He knows things about us we don't know. There are thousands, millions, billions of people in this world who do not know that they need God to step in. But God knows it. Before you and I knew that something needed to be done about those who are wandering in darkness, God saw, He heard, He experiences the pain of people who don't know why their life is broken. They just know it is. He feels the emptiness and hollowness of those who do not realize their life is broken. But it is. God sees, He hears, and He responds. Note the acknowledgement here that it is His mission. I have come down to deliver them. Not, I am sending you to deliver them. Not, I am delegating deliverance to you, Moses. I have come down. The deliverance that ultimately takes place, we could hardly deny, was God's deliverance in this case. God did things in Egypt that human beings can't do. God hears, He knows, He experiences the needs of His people. In Isaiah chapter 6, again, a little more implicitly this time, the focus has been for Isaiah on his awareness of God in his transcendent reality. And Isaiah notes that there's something that needs to be done here. He, he, he notes it because he feels it himself. Woe is me! There's nothing like seeing yourself in the mirror of God's holiness to make you realize your own need. As Competent and capable as we sometimes perceive ourselves to be, as self-contained and independent as we might think ourselves, ultimately when we see ourselves standing in comparison to God, we recognize our lowliness. Isaiah did. And God saw it too. He recognized his need. So he sends a seraph from the throne area, goes and picks up with tongs, coal from the altar that's burning there, comes and touches Isaiah's lips and says, Now you are clean. Now we'll come back to what it means to be clean in just a few minutes. But first of all, simply notice that God was tuned in to His disciples, His followers' needs. He recognized, he recognized the nature of that need. Not just that a need existed, but he, he dealt specifically with the need that Isaiah perceived. God perceived it too. And then there is this extension of that in verse 8. Whom shall 
I sinned. Why? Well, you, you don't send somebody unless you recognize that there is a need. Right? If I'm, when, I'm, when the kids were little and I'd be out working on the car or something like that, I'd send Alex to go get me a wrench or something. Well, why did I send him? I need the wrench. God wants to send somebody because he knows there's a need. God would not be in the sending business unless he were acutely aware of the need. You find Jonah's version of God's awareness of need at the, on the very last verse of the book. It's something which has lain there, perhaps very tacitly, for four chapters. Jonah doesn't get it, but God always has. And finally, Jonah's sitting up there. God has caused this vine to grow over Jonah to provide some shade, you know, as he sits there and pouts. Uh, because God did exactly what he promised he would do. Don't you hate it when he does that? Jonah did. He did not want the people of Nineveh to be saved. The Syrians were the arch enemies of Israel at that time. But at the end, the vine withers. Jonah gets even more pouty. And God says, are you concerned about the vine? Jonah said, yeah, I like that vine. Instrumentally, it was very helpful to me. God says, you know how you feel about that vine? And I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, if you'll allow me a little license. Multiply that times got gazillions. And you know how I feel about this 120,000 people here who don't know their right from their left. These are people who are so ignorant, they don't even know how much they don't know. But I know. I care. I have experience their need for me and I have sent you to meet that need and it worked don't pout about that this is exactly what I wanted to happen God knows our needs and the mission proceeds forth from his holiness and sovereign will when that will intersects with human need have you noticed that we're not even there yet? And God is already at work. But God also invites us to participate. Isn't it interesting? Uh, we tend to perceive God's commandments as directives, as obligations, duties. Isn't it interesting? that even some of those words that I've just used smack with the connotation of unpleasantness. If I'm told to do something, that must mean it's something that I don't want to do. Because we don't have to tell somebody to do things they want to do, right? Mark, go over and get a piece of that chocolate cake. I mean it now, don't fuss. No, you don't have to tell me to do that. You probably should tell me if I'm not supposed to do that. Because I'm going to assume that, yeah, we were at Terry and Kim's house last night. I was on my second cookie before I asked permission. I just, you know, I assumed they were sitting out there on the counter. They intended it for me. Um, you don't have to tell me to do things like that. So if I have to be told to do something, we automatically begin to feel like maybe that I'm not going to want to. God has led in this. He has started it. He has taken the initiative and he has begun a task that he wants to invite us. 
Mission is invitational. It's something that we're given permission to do, the way that I'm given permission to eat a piece of chocolate cake. It's something that I want to do anyway because I understand the value of it. I don't mean the nutritional value. I mean the way that my taste buds interact with it. I don't have to be persuaded to do that. Once I know it's chocolate cake, have you ever, I, I've been to a couple of weddings here lately. I'm always pleasantly surprised when I find out the groom's cake is white on the outside, but it's chocolate on the inside. Before I knew that, I was less interested in it. But now that I know what's in there, I'm in. When you know how much God cares about our world, and when you understand how tuned in He is to our needs, and then when you realize that He is giving us the privilege of being involved in that, then mission makes sense. God invites us to be a part of His plans. He tells Moses in chapter 3 and verse 10, Come, I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. I have in mind to do this. You get to be a part of it. Because I could do it anyway. Mordecai told Esther, you'll recall, when Esther expressed concern about the prospect that she might not be invited to join the king in his chambers. And that if he, she were not invited and went in any way presumptuously that she might lose her life. And you remember what Mordecai told Esther, right? It may be that God knows exactly what's going to happen here. And that everything will turn out exactly as he wants. And you can decide whether or not you want to be involved in this. Because if you are not involved in it, God will bring about his will through other means. But who knows? but what you might have been brought to this moment for such a time as this. Uh, God will accomplish His mission. God will ultimately be glorified. Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 tells us that God will receive through His Son the glory and honor that He has always deserved. That's God's ultimate will and it will happen. The question is, will you be involved? God has invited us to be involved in that. In Isaiah chapter 6, I heard heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? Who will go for us? We tend to focus on the last part of that verse. Here am I, send me. But the question is real. Not will going take place, but will I be involved in it? Will I answer that invitation? Will I be a part of that? We know the story of Jonah. This... As the book opens, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, this great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Arise, go. Jonah is invited to be a part of something much bigger and much more important than anything else he's ever experienced. You and I take a look at Jonah and we go, Shame, 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 shame. Doesn't he know how this book ends up? Well, no, he hadn't seen the book of Jonah, as it turns out. Um, doesn't he understand that God loves everybody? Apparently not. Apparently this whole idea of being God's chosen people means I like you, I don't like them. Not true. Jonah's got some lessons still to learn. And so we, we furrow our brows like I'm furrowing my brow right now. By the way, I've noticed I've gotten older. Brow furrowing is becoming a lot easier for me. Uh, but we fail to realize the sense in which we 
are perhaps much closer to following Jonah's example than we are God's example. We sit passively by and watch as those people who are destroying themselves and who deserve, therefore, God's wrath plunge headlong into it. Oh, perhaps we don't get the same joy out of it that Jonah might have gotten if the king of Nineveh had said no. But we are not actively involved in God's mission. We, we don't perceive that this invitation is one that we want to respond to. It's that time of year. We're getting um, invitations to go to people's graduations. Congratulations for those of you who are in that position. We're getting invitations to go to people's weddings. June is a very popular month. And so you say, oh, okay, I'm trying to decide, am I going to go? It's X number of hours away. Uh, how close am I to these people? Can I afford to give them a gift? Okay, you're not thinking about that. I'm just kidding. Uh, but, you know, you're making some decisions about what kinds of things you'll say yes to. That's all Jonah was doing. He didn't like this invitation. So he chose to say no. He recognized that he could say no. And so he chose to do that. But God has given us an invitation to be a part of his mission and to say yes to something that is much bigger and more powerful than anything we could devise to do on our own. Say yes. Look around you and ask, what is it that God is calling me to through his word and through circumstances of life? that would result in honoring and glorifying him, things which could have surprisingly powerful results like Jonah had. Can you think about the odds? There are two reasons at least why Jonah perhaps would have said no to this invitation. The first is because he didn't like them, and that turns out to be the biggest thing. But it's also true that the, that the prospects for success seemed minimal, right? When you think about this, the king of Nineveh, a megalomaniac has already, over the course of the last couple hundred years, wreaked havoc for the people of God, thumbed his nose at God. What are the prospects that he's going to say yes when this preaching takes place? Have we ever done that? Have we ever not talked to somebody about Jesus because we think they, we know what their response will be? Surely we've never done that, have we? So Jonah's got lots of reasons to say no to this invitation, perhaps. And so he does. But of course, God has bigger things in mind. And God knows things that we don't know, both about the quality of the hearts of people. I sometimes refer to Jonah as the successful unmissionary. There's not a missionary alive who wouldn't like to have Jonah's success rate. All the way from the king, all the way down, 120,000 people in sackcloth and ashes ready to give their lives to God. From a guy who didn't even want to do the job whose message is not exactly y'all come there's so many blessings and benefits to be a part of the kingdom of God you ought, to, you ought to see our new gym you know this is a message saying okay turn or burn your choice shortest sermon in history I know some of you guys probably wish Melvin and Terry and Doug would preach lessons like that <clears throat> short at least God invites us to be a part of something that he knows will succeed in honoring him. Because that's success, right? Success is not about the number of people who respond. In this case, in Jonah's case, all kinds of people, I mean, everybody responded. How about, Isaiah, how about Isaiah's success rate? 
Have you guys read from chapter, chapter uh, 6 and verse 9 and following where God tells Isaiah what the results are going to be? What are, what are they? People are not going to listen. You just keep preaching, and the more you preach, the harder their hearts are going to become. God did not call us to be successful. He called us to be faithful. You cannot lose at that if you accept His invitation. And here's why. God promises to be with us. We frequently pray for our missionaries. We say, Dear Lord, please be those missionaries who are far away from our homes and who are very difficult circumstances. And sometimes that's the case. Sometimes the missionaries haven't told you how great their lives are where they live. But they certainly do miss their families. It's a normalcy of life prior to having gone that they've gotten used to. And sometimes it gets a little lonely. Appreciate John urging us to send cards and express appreciation. That means a lot to the folks who are in those kinds of circumstances. But how many cards you receive from your sponsoring churches? How many phone calls you get from people you love? How many times you get to visit the United States is not the point. God promises to be with us, and He is enough. If you don't believe that, you need to take a look at your Bible. He's enough. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring children of Israel out of Egypt? God said, Well, Moses, you're a great candidate for this. You grew up in Pharaoh's household yourself. You have learned patience by tending sheep. You've watched as God has prospered you. You're the great person to go. No, he did not say that. What did he say in response to that question? I'll be with you. That's it. That's the only thing that matters. I will be with you. You can count on me. I will help you with the things that you need. Isaiah, in chapter 6. I heard the voice of the, voice of the Lord. Have you noticed how many times verse 8 has showed up in this lesson today? The pieces of that summarize the entire business. Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Note this. I heard the voice of the Lord. That's it. This is the defining moment in Isaiah's life. He has encountered God. And because of that, everything else is just details. We do what we do because we have seen God at work. We have heard His voice. And therefore, the invitation to be sent makes sense. Apart from that, it just doesn't. The people in Slovakia were mystified by our presence. Why would you do this? Because they would, they would hear us struggling with the language. It was, sometimes I believe that the Lord put us in Slovakia for comic relief. I mean, we say all kinds of silly stuff, you know, and, and stumbling around, not knowing what we're doing and things like that. And they watched the discomfort. <laughs> Apparently, watching me live in another country was really awkward. Uh, why are you doing this? I mean, you could be back home. You could be enjoying life with your family. You could not have to be learning this language and, and understanding these customs. We understand life here. It's hard, you know, you're living in a place... Uh, you know, a fourth the size of the place you probably had back home. They didn't know what we were living in back home. But uh, you know, in their mind, there was no good reason for that. It was just 
odd. We gave them plenty of reasons to believe that they were odd. But the whole prospect of doing something, you move to another place because you feel like there's an opportunity to experience better life. What doofus goes another place where they've experienced a life that's not as good? Like moving from the promised land, United States of America, back during the early 90s, to Slovakia, this little dinky country in the armpit of Europe. Why would you do that? This is the answer. You hear the voice of God. You are aware of what He can do and what He is doing and what He has done. You're aware of His mission and you say almost inexplicably, here am I, send me. Several years ago, we were teaching. We had a, we had a missions room at the Estes Church where I worship for quite some time. And we would, over the course of a, of a given quarter, we would invite all of the kids in our Bible school program from kindergarten up through senior year and then also even some of the adult classes. They would come in the missions room and we'd have a missions lesson in there. And one year, we used this text as the basis for that. And... Uh, we had, I don't know how old the kids were, Dana probably can remember, pretty young, second, third grade, something like that in there. And uh, I got to this part of the lesson, I said, God said to Isaiah, who will go for us and whom shall we send? And I said, what did, what did Isaiah say? And Kelsey shot her hand up there in the front row. She said, I'm right here, pick me. I said, that's right. That's exactly what Isaiah said. I'm right here, pick me. It's almost as if Isaiah couldn't get his hand up fast enough once he realized who God was and what, was, what he was doing and then received an invitation to be a part of it. I can't get my hand up fast enough for that kind of thing because I know that God is going to be with me and I can count on him. Who's going to go for us? That is inclusive language. God says, I'm going to be doing this anyway. Would you like to join me? Jonah prayed to the Lord from the belly of the great fish. Now, there's a story for you. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. He was right there all along, wasn't he? God was never far from him. Isn't that what Paul tells the Athenians? In Acts chapter 17, you've been looking for God. You're pretty confused about the whole business. Uh, but don't perceive that He is far from you because He's not. If you, he's so close that blind though you are, spiritually speaking, if you just reach out and grope, you'll find Him. For He's not far from any one of us. He's always there. He was there when Jonah was invited. He was there when Jonah was fleeing. He was there when Jonah was fish food. And he was there when Jonah was confused at the end of the book. He's always been there. After all, it's his mission. Once we understand that, once we understand that God is who he is, that he is high and holy and lifted up, that he is sovereign, once we understand that He sees the needs of His people and is tuned in and cares about those kinds of things, once we understand that we have been invited to participate in the process and that God will be with us throughout it, we are ready to be used by the God who sins. Come, He says to Moses, I will send you. He says to the people in this room, 
Come. I will send you. He's got something for you to do personally. There are people you know in the community around you that he would like for you to partner with him to touch. And then there are people in remote areas of the world. He's got a place for you in that too. And we'll talk more about that as we come to our worship hour this morning. Thank you so much for your kind attention.